Welcome to MoFo Perspectives, a podcast by Morrison and Forrester, where we share the perspectives of our clients, colleagues, subject matter experts, and lawyers. I'm Joe Palmore. I co-chair the firm's Appellate and Supreme Court Practice Group, and I am an alum of the Office of the Solicitor General, and I've argued 12 cases before the Supreme Court. And I'm Deanne Maynard. I'm Joe's co-chair of the Appellate and Supreme Court Practice Group at Morrison and Forster. I've argued 14 cases in the United States Supreme Court and many more in the federal courts of appeals. And I joined the firm after serving as an assistant to the Solicitor General, including during the changeover period between President Bush and President Obama. Today, Deanne and I are going to be talking about the Office of the Solicitor General, what its role is, and in particular, something that's quite salient right now, which is when and under what circumstances will the Solicitor General change the litigating position of the United States before the Supreme Court? I will note that uh, we are recording this on Friday, January 22nd. Uh, Right now, we don't know who the next Solicitor General will be. We do know that Elizabeth Prelegar has been uh, named the acting Solicitor General and then will be the principal deputy in the office. With those preliminaries out of the way, Deanne, why don't you uh, tell us what the role of the Solicitor General is? What does this person do? Well, the Office of the Solicitor General was created by statute in 1870. And the act states that there shall be an officer learned in the law to be called the Solicitor General to assist the Attorney General in the performance of his or her duties. We should note that the, the office is largely made up of career attorneys. There are only two political appointees in the office, one being the Solicitor General himself or herself, who is appointed by the president and then confirmed by the Senate, and then a principal deputy, sometimes called the political deputy, who's the number two to the Solicitor General and is also appointed but not confirmed by the Senate. But the other 18 or so lawyers in the office are all career lawyers like Joe and I were, and they stay on between administrations or don't come and go dependent with the administration. And some of those lawyers have been there for decades. They've spanned multiple presidents and there's a tremendous uh, depth of institutional memory in in that office. And at bottom, the mission of the Solicitor General's office is to represent the interests of the United States, mostly before the Supreme Court, although the SG also has a couple other really important functions. So the SG's office briefs and argues cases on behalf of the United States in the Supreme Court. It also files petitions for certiorari when the United States wants to seek review in the Supreme Court, and more often than that, opposes petitions for review when the United States has one in a court of appeals and the other party wants the Supreme Court's review. But the SG also performs a really important function in protecting the United States' interests more broadly nationwide. For any appeal across the country, from a district court to the court of appeals, whoever's representing the United States in whatever court across the country has to have the approval of the Solicitor General in order to appeal. And that's a really important institutional function that the office provides, which is to try to help maintain some uniformity of the United States positions across the country, and also to pick their battles, frankly. You know, have the Solicitor General decide in some cases that maybe. This isn't a good case to push the arguments that the United States had been advancing the district court and to uh, essentially take their lumps in that case and wait to fight the issue another day. 
that role of the Solicitor General in the lower courts is really important. But today we're going to now shift and talk just about the role of the Solicitor General in the Supreme Court. The Solicitor General has been called the 10th Justice, and that says a lot about uh, the importance of the role. The nine justices look to the Solicitor General to be an honest broker, to state the institutional interests of the United States, and they don't view this person as kind of a normal advocate uh, before the court. They hold the Solicitor General in very high regard, and they have very high standards for the advocacy they expect out of the Solicitor General and, and out of, of that office. And of course, some some Solicitor Generals have moved from being the 10th Justice to one of the nine. How many have made that transition to him? Well, at least three, including one of the current Justices, uh, Elena Kagan, for whom Joe and I both worked in the Solicitor General's office. She's now Justice on the Supreme Court. Also, Thurgood Marshall and Robert Jackson were Solicitors General before they were on the Supreme Court. But to Joe's point, I mean, in most cases, the you know institutional interest of the United States is the same across different administrations. But not surprisingly, on some perhaps often more hot button issues, ideological issues, the new Solicitor General, when they come in in a new administration, like like we just had a change over this week, might look back at some positions and think maybe we should change positions. And Justice Kagan has spoken about this dynamic publicly once she was a justice. She's explained that when she joined the Obama administration and she saw some of the positions they were taking, she was like, really, we're, we're, we're taking those positions? And she said that the career lawyers in the office, and, and most of the lawyers in the office are, are career lawyers, cautioned then Solicitor General Kagan that if she was thinking about changing positions, she should uh, think long and hard about it and, and then think long and hard about it again. And, you know, she says that that was really the right thing to do because what's at stake is the credibility of the Solicitor General's office, which the court puts a lot of stake in. And also for the, the long-term interest of the United States often remain the same throughout administrations. They try to defend criminal convictions that U.S. attorneys have obtained. They defend statutes that Congress has passed. And so it's it's not surprising that the long-term interest of the United States is to maintain their you know, the positions they've held most of the time in most cases. And Joe, I think you you were in, at the fulcrum of this this issue at one point when you were in the SG's office as a career lawyer, you were at the podium and you want to tell folks about what happened there? Yes, uh, I was arguing a relatively obscure ERISA case in 2012, and it did involve a, a change of position in one of the sub-issues in the case. Position taken by the office was different than a position taken by the government some 15 years before in a court of appeals brief in the Fifth Circuit. And I'll just note parenthetically that I think if we hadn't disclosed that in our brief, no one would have even known about it. But the, but the office does feel it has a duty of candor and a duty to note when it is changing position. In the brief, we used a phrase that had been used many times in the office until then, uh, which was some version of upon further reflection, the Solicitor General now thinks X when before he had thought Y. And Chief Justice Roberts uh, made clear during my oral argument that he uh, was not a big fan of this phrase upon further reflection. He thought it was kind of a dodge. And he said, look, there's a new administration. This is a new 
government is in power. And why don't you just say that? Why don't you just say we have a new position instead of saying that it's the product of upon further reflection? And didn't, uh, didn't some people used to joke that it was really upon further election? Yes, that was the office joke. And that joke isn't made anymore because that phrase upon further reflection is not made anymore uh, because the chief justice made clear he didn't like it. Um, I think I was really just the unlucky assistant at the podium when he was delivering this message. I think there was a larger concern that he perhaps had with the, what he perceived to be changes of position that the uh, Obama Solicitor General's office was taking. And uh, and I ended up just being the, the conduit for that message. But uh, later on, Don Riley, who was the Solicitor General at the time, Justice Scalia expressed some question about a, a similar switch. And we have a clip here to play. This is uh, Don Riley arguing for the United States and Justice Scalia asking him questions. Yeah, this is a case called Kiabel versus Royal Dutch Petroleum, and the details aren't really important here, but it's about the scope of U.S. courts' ability to uh, entertain lawsuits under the Alien Tort Statute against uh, foreign defendants. Let's listen to that clip. That's, that's a new position for the for the State Department, isn't it? It's a new and and for, and for the United States government. Why should why should we listen to you rather than the solicitors general who? took the opposite position and the position taken by respondents here in other cases, not only in several courts of appeals, but even up here. Well, Justice Scalia, in a case like this one, in cases under the Alien Tort Statute, the United States has multiple interests. We certainly have foreign relations interests in avoiding friction with foreign governments. We have interests in avoiding subjecting United States companies to liability abroad. We also have interests in ensuring that our nation's foreign relations commitments to the rule of law and human rights are not eroded. I understand that, but, but... It's my responsibility to balance those comp- sometimes competing interests and make a judgment about what the position of the United States should be consistent with it, existing it was, law. It was, it was the have, responsibility so. of your predecessors as well, and they took a different position. So, you know, why, why, why should we defer to the views of, uh, uh, of the current administration? Well, because we think they're persuasive, Your Honor. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, you're, 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 <laughs> your successors may adopt a different view. And I think, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but Justice Scalia's point means whatever deference you're entitled to is compromised by the fact that uh, your predecessors took a different position. Yeah, and that was Chief Justice Roberts uh, joining in there uh, at the end. But I think this discussion is kind of emblematic of the way the justices view uh, the role of the office and their, you know, sometimes their uh, dislike of changes of position. And it goes to your point, Deanne, about the deference that's owed to the Solicitor General's position. And I think that deference this shows is is going to be lessened when it's a new position. Right. And I, I think, Don recognizes that at the end where he basically says, well, you should agree with us because essentially we're right, we're persuasive, as opposed to getting deference. And definitely in in the cases where the SG has switched positions, I think the court tends to give them much less deference than in cases where the United States has maintained consistent positions throughout, or in, in sort of more to the point, maybe in cases where the justices perceive the United States has less of a direct interest, especially when it's weighing in as a Mickey in someone else's case. I think that's exactly right. Um, and now, of course, it's not just the Obama administration that ran into this issue with justices. Uh, if you fast forward to 
2018, Noel Francisco was President Trump's Solicitor General. He was at the podium in a case called Janus versus AFSCME, which involved the First Amendment claim and, and union dues. And again, the details uh, aren't important, uh, but there was a telling exchange between Justice Sotomayor and uh, a Solicitor General Francisco. And let's listen to that one now. I don't understand what you're arguing. This is such a radical new position on your part. I don't, I don't Mr. think. Mr. General, by the way, how many times this term already have you flipped positions from prior administrations? Uh, Your Honor, I believe. This may be how many? Your Honor, I think that we have uh, revised the position in uh, so far three cases. So I was actually there for that argument. I wasn't in the courtroom. I was in the lawyer's lounge where you can, members of the Supreme Court bar can listen to arguments if the courtroom is full. And when Justice Sotomayor asked that question, there was an audible gasp in, in the room uh, because it was so direct and reflected uh, what seemed to be a clear view on her part that the Trump administration was changing positions too often. But it does seem that that Noel Francisco was ready for that question, right, Dan? I mean, he had he, he, he knew the answer right away. It was three times he said at that point that they had changed positions. So he must have been that must have come up in his moot courts. Maybe so, or I expect, nodding back to Justice Kagan's comments, that Noel was well aware of how many times he had authorized a change in position because that isn't something that the Solicitor General does lightly. So, and here we are now. We are into a new administration. And what do we think this administration may do in terms of changing positions? Well, to go back to a point that you made a couple times earlier, I think it's important listeners to understand that in the vast majority of cases at the court, there would be no change of position or even consideration of a change of position. So most criminal cases, cases involving, for instance, like monetary liability in the United States, uh, there, are, there are cases where the institutional interest is very clear and there isn't necessarily a, a political valence to the case. And, and all those cases will just kind of proceed as they as they normally would. But there would there will certainly be a, a small group of cases uh, in which a change of position would at least be considered. And there, and there, of course, I guess there are various ways that this, that this can happen, right? Deanna, I mean, there. Yeah. I mean, and I, I think the Solicitor General's office and this, whoever will become the Solicitor General would much prefer that the executive branch change it through more ordinary course. Like it could be that some of the executive orders President Biden has already signed will have effect on pending lit- litigation and then whoever's representing the United States in those cases would take those orders and explain why they affected the litigation and how, rather than a change in the brief. By the same token, if rules or regulations are changed or rescinded or suspended, then you know that's a decision made by effectively the client of the Solicitor General. And the, the Solicitor General, or if it's in lower courts, you know, whichever lawyers representing the United States can go and explain how that affects the, the pending case. But there may be cases where done in a brief, right? Right, right. No, I mean, I think you make a great point that the Solicitor General would typically prefer someone else to be the one changing the position, whether it's an administrative agency or, or the president. And I think it's cleaner and the justices are not likely to be annoyed there because they understand that that's what happens when there's a change in government, the policymakers have a right to, to make policy. And I think you're also right, though, that there will be a, a subset of cases where perhaps the, the office is just addressing a legal question. There's no underlying regulatory or re- 
regime that's or, or regulation that's being challenged, for instance. And there, the change of position will have to come in a brief or in a letter or in a statement at oral argument. And that's where it can be complicated. And that's where that institutional reluctance can come to bear. And do you have any predictions on any particular case or we're just going to be waiting and seeing? Well, you know, I mean, one that's been talked about quite a bit is Texas versus California, which is the uh, the latest challenge to Obamacare. And I'll just, in the interest of full disclosure, note that I filed an amicus brief on behalf of law professors in that case, uh, defending the statute. I will say the timing of that one is a little tricky. I mean, that case has already been briefed. It's already been argued. It was argued back in November. The justices are presumably very far along in writing their opinion or opinions in that case. It's clearly a case uh, that would be in the pool uh, of cases that would be ripe for a change of position. It was a case where the Trump administration took the position that the entire Affordable Care Act should be uh, struck down. And it seems quite obvious that the Biden administration would have a different view uh, on that legal question. Now, given that the case has been briefed and argued, it's not exactly clear how or if the Biden administration would want to express that changed view. They could perhaps send a letter withdrawing their brief, or I guess they could try to file a new brief. It's not clear that they would want to do that or that they would think they needed to do that, given how the oral argument in that case went. And most observers thought that the Affordable Care Act was going to survive this challenge. So they they may view themselves as uh, better off just kind of standing down, but we'll have to see on that one. Well, I think it will be really interesting time period here as the Biden administration gets up and rolling and we will all be watching with all of you. Who is the new Solicitor General and what he or she decides to do on these issues? Indeed, it'll be an interesting uh, next few months to watch what happens. This is the end of our MOFO Perspectives episode on the Office of the Solicitor General and changes of position. Once again, I'm Joe Palmore and I've been speaking with Deanne Maynard. Thank you for joining us. Please make sure to subscribe to the MoFo Perspectives podcast so you don't miss an episode. If you have any questions about what you heard today or would like more information on this topic, please visit mofo.com slash podcasts. Again, that's mofo, M-O-F-O dot com slash podcasts.